Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is Richard Mills, who joins me to discuss his book, The Beatles and Fandom. Richard's book is the first to discuss fan subcultures like conventions, slash fiction and tribute bands. It combines academic theory on fandom with really fascinating original research material to tell an alternative history of the Beatles phenomenon, a fan's history of the Beatles that runs concurrently with the story that we all know. Richard Mills, hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? I'm very well, and I'm very excited and very pleased to be a guest on your podcast. I'm a, I'm a big fan. Thanks, Richard. That's incredibly kind. So uh, we're here to talk about the Beatles and fandom, sex, death and progressive nostalgia. Uh, the Beatles and their fan subcultures is an area which isn't covered in a huge amount of depth in a lot of Beatles books. What inspired you to write about it? Actually, that was the inspiration initially. I have been a lifelong Beatles fan. I mean, they, they colonised my mind when I was about two. I got obsessed with the Beatles. What if, you know, we all have these little ambitions we'd like to do, and we usually keep them quite secret. Mine always was to write a book on the Beatles. So I was looking around to find something that there wasn't too much written about, and I stumbled upon this idea of the Beatles and fandom, because not too many people had written about that area. And that's essentially it. And when I started looking into it, I noticed that there was, there, there certainly was a gap in the market. I read, I dipped into, I read Candy Leonard's book. Mm. And I went, oh no, someone's beaten me to it. But as that didn't put me off. I'm just going to throw myself into this and have a go writing about fandom. And I think I've, I've managed it really. I think there's stuff in my book that nobody else has really written about. Well, at least I, I hope I've managed it. There absolutely is. Uh, speaking as someone that's read, as you know, a fair few Beatles books, there's lots in here to discover, lots that I really enjoyed. So the, the book is subtitled Sex, Death and Progressive Nostalgia. Could you tell mm -hmm. us kind of roughly what that refers to? No, the Beatles and fandom, it's very broad reach. I decided to start with Beatles Monthly, which is the opening chapter of the book in 1963, and go right up to the Beatles and YouTube and how the Beatles music and image has been digitized in, you know, by millennials, post-millennials and right up to 2019. So it's a very broad reach in the book. And I'm sure we'll mention that in today's podcast. So initially the first chapter was, I'm going to take a really deep dive into Beatles monthly. So I managed to go to the British library and I found most of the original Beatles monthlies. Then in secondhand shops, I bought the rest of them. So I did take my very deep dive into Beatles Monthly. And I noticed that, and this is really quite funny, it was almost carnivalesque in a sense. The, the fan letters to Beatles Monthly were usually the demographic, and I've looked into this quite deeply, was young, obviously adolescent girl fans, probably from the age 10 to 16. And there was quite a sexual subtext, which was very funny. And they wrote, they would go, look, I wish George would shave his moustache off. He's much better looking about his moustache. Paul looks great with a suntan when he's come back from the Greek island. So it, there, there really was this frisson in 
this Beatles monthly. And it was so, it was couched in such an innocent way in the lovely mop tops. So that was the first reference to sex, as far as I could see it, and an expression of sex in the Beatles fandom. Of course, Barbara Ehrenreich, in her fantastic book, Dancing in the Street, talks about the liberation of young female fans going and screaming at Beatles concerts. So those two things fed into that chapter. And then it gets even more sort of gothic and outrageous throughout the book, The Issue of Sex, because I, as you know from the book, Joe, I also take a deep dive into literary fiction, fan fiction and slash fiction. And just to write about slash fiction, that opportunity was amazing because it's highly sexualized. It was subversive. And again, it was written by fairly young people who just let their imaginations go wild. And actually, I do think that uh, the slash fiction is completely in the spirit of the Beatles. I think they would be very amused by the the, the strange sexual permutations that they that all the dramatists persona of the Beatles story find themselves in in these stories. So that, that covers the, the sex a- aspect of the book. Death, unfortunately, and here's where I really was a bit nervous about that. I, I did feel that there's a whole debate in academia about um, whether Mark Chapman was a Beatles fan or not. And I really didn't want to touch it with the proverbial barge pole, that whole area. But I thought if I'm going to write about fandom, writers like Mark Duffett have really looked into the whole Mark Chapman thing. So I thought I really can't ignore writing about John Lennon's death and about and the subject in the book. And then once I wrote about John Lennon, I really had to, unfortunately, in a sense, write about Michael Abram and the attack of George Harrison. So that covers the sex and death. And a, a joke here as well, as Woody Allen said, sex and death are both once-in-a-lifetime experiences. So I always thought I'd be able to trot that line out if the book got any attention, attention which it fortunately it has. So that's the sex and the death. The progressive nostalgia idea is my academic cap in a way, because there's a thing at universities called the research assessment exercise, and you have to write a really, a book with intellectual kudos and with academic pedigree to get into this research assessment exercise. And fortunately it did, because I did take a rather pretentious dive into um, Derrida and Walter Benjamin and people like that. And I did that with one eye on the fact that this was going to be an academic book and go into academic libraries. And I was very fortunate. It got the top rating in universities. It got a far, a four-star rating. So that was the progressive nostalgia bit. And essentially, in a very pithy, direct way, what progressive nostalgia really is, is that you look far back to look far forward. And how that happened was that I did a chapter on um, heritage culture, museum culture, and Beatles walking tours. And how I started that is I'm quite friendly with Richard Porter, who, you know, I'm sure you've been on his walks. I did London, I did Liverpool and a few other places, but I started my research on Beatles walks in London. And I went to numerous Beatles walks, and specifically the ones I really enjoyed were Richard Porter's. And on one of those walks, I took a long time to put together a questionnaire to find out who the demographic were of people that went to these Beatles walks, these walking tours, who went to Abbey Road, um, their age, their interest, et cetera, et cetera. It was a very detailed um, questionnaire. I mean, I got a 
sociologist to help me do it. It wasn't just like I dreamt this up. And the questionnaire actually is in, in the appendix of the book. So I was very shocked. I got up to Abbey Road, handed all these questionnaires out. And the, the age range was from about you know, 12, 13, 14, right up to 75. And there was one question about how does it make you feel? Is this what Derrida calls mal de archive, an unhealthy obsession with the past? You know, you walk into your local news agents, you see Mojo on cut. It's always, you know, Oasis, and then all the 60s bands, the Beatles, the Stones. And if you don't move forward, you're just going to atrophy. And of course you want to move forward. So I was very anxious about this walking tour. But everybody I asked, they would fill in the questionnaire. And even people who were 75 in that age group, they said the Beatles walking tours made them look forward, made them feel optimistic. So in a sense, what progressive nostalgia is, looking far back to look far forward and to create something new. And actually in my next book, probably the best definite definition of progressive nostalgia is, you know, obviously the White Album we all know released on the 22nd of November 1968, perhaps arguably the uh, most iconic album of the 1960s. Now, we all know that then Jay-Z in 2003 released the Black Album. And then Danger Mouse comes along with the Grey Album and mashes the two. So in a sense, he takes the past transforms it into something new and moves it forward. Now, not, we know the Beatles songs do not particularly need that. I mean, I would contend that we'll be listening to them in three, four hundred years time. But that's a good enough definition of progressive nostalgia. You go back, you enjoy the Beatles texts as they are, but they can also, don't be too respectful about them, write slash fiction about, about them, write fan fiction about them, literary fiction about them, mash Beatles videos on YouTube, mash the music, go on the tours and psychologically just see where that takes you. So in a way, just don't throw out the past, adapt it and move forward with it. So that, that that's rather a sort of rarefied, pretentious description of progressive nostalgia. Now, I think it's very worthwhile, this definition of progressive nostalgia, but I, I started that little spiel there about I had one eye on the academy and I had to write something to deep and intellectual for academia, so I did that. But I also think I did it in a very accessible way, which will you know communicate outside um, mm -hmm. the cloisters of academia as well. Well, at least I hope I have. I, I absolutely would say that, that you did. So let's have a look at some of the, the areas that you, you cover in the book. And we'll start with Beatle conventions, uh, which I dare say many a listener has attended uh, all over the world. I know I certainly have. How important are the conventions uh, and what purpose do you think that, that they serve? Absolutely. Really interesting question. Again, in the chronology of my book, I started with Beatles Monthly. Then the second chapter was Beatles Conventions because Mark Lapidus, Lapidus, got his name right, he started the conventions in 1974. And that was a great place to start the second chapter because the Beatles have broken up and because we are all such obsessive fans. Now, like, I'm a, like Ken Womack, I'm a second generation fan. I came to the Beatles in the 70s. But if you're a first generation Beatles fan, I mean, maybe trauma is too strong a word, but the Beatles were, it is too strong a word, but the Beatles were so loved and so missed that people wanted to keep it alive. And so they wanted to come together 
in a community where they could talk about the Beatles, share their experiences, watch Beatles tribute groups, swap memorabilia. That's, I think that's the function that Beatles conventions perform is a sense of community. Now, before I wrote this book, I was highly skeptical of conventions. I thought, look, it's going to be really a healthy obsession with the past. It's going to be, people are going to be obsessed with the total minutiae of the Beatles. It's going to be quite alienating. But when I got to the conventions, I had a complete epiphany. Everybody was lovely. Everybody was fascinating and interesting. For one in particular, I went to the convention in Chicago where we were in a hotel for four days. I did not leave the hotel for four days. Didn't want to leave the hotel. Met lots of 60s pop stars, anybody that anything to do with the Beatles. Fast friends automatically. As soon as you met someone, you had this shorthand, this way into becoming friendly with them because you had this subject in common of the Beatles. I think the function is an absolute sense of community. And everybody was depressed on the last morning of breakfast. I would imagine there'd be some sort of detox for a few days. You'd be going down the street and randomly stopping strangers and talking about the Beatles. You miss it so much. So I did a completely 360 turn and was absolutely blown away with conventions. Absolutely love them. So I went there and I interviewed lots of people at the Chicago convention. And then I went to Beatles Week in Liverpool. And that, I, that was amazing as well. A whole week of Beatles stuff. In fact, as you know, when you go to the Adelphi, and if you stay in the Adelphi, the bands come on at midnight and play all night. Again, as you know, the tribute bands are from every country in the world. There's free jazz experimental tribute bands. There was a band called the Fungals who were Spanish girls playing Motown, styly Beatles songs, all of this. And again, that fits into the progressive nostalgia. They were taking the Beatles songs and reimagining them and making them new. So again, Beatles Week, I thought, oh, it's going to be, you know, wallowing in the past. It's not going to be anything that interesting, but absolutely the opposite. It kept the past alive, which is brilliant. I mean, that's what the British are good at, real ill campaigns, National Trust heritage. Let's keep it alive, but let's also sex it up a little bit. And I would, that's absolutely what conventions do. Hmm. I, I love them. One of the interesting things about conventions I was curious to get your view on is the way that they changed over the years Mark Lewison on the Nothing Is Real podcast several years ago he talks about those especially in England those pre-1980 conventions that were quite sparsely attended and then as soon as John is killed these things become a hive of activity and they've never really stopped being a hive of activity for the last kind of 40 years or so um did you get a sense from when you looked at those early conventions, the the first Beatles Fest, how they've changed over the years. Absolutely. It's, it, you mentioned Mark Lewison. I interviewed him for the Beatles and fandom, but we had a really nice chat, and he told me in quite close detail about those early conferences. And I think he went to one in Norwich, was it? Mm. I'd, have to look at, I'd have to look up the interview I did with him again. And he said it was... There was hardly anybody there. It was just like this little, this little cult. So I don't know, you know, where the mid to late 70s, the Nadir for the Beatles, possibly, but that's when I was first getting into them. So it's difficult for me to, to, to think that it was the Nadir for the Beatles. But from what, from what Lewis had said, absolutely, the conventions were 
sparsely populated. There was there wasn't very many people there. And then I think you're absolutely right because when we look, what's so fascinating about Beatles history is they did the ten thousand hours in Hamburg. They're really talented. They're lovely. They're charismatic. All of that, but all those sort of what we could call grand narratives beyond their own personal lives that you know coalesce came together to create the Beatles phenomenon. That's what's so fascinating. And unfortunately, and I remember this very clearly because I becoming a big Beatles fan in the late seventies, and I remember John Lennon being killed very clearly, and I, I just couldn't just couldn't believe it. But that dead school, and for the next week or two, suddenly people that had no interest in the Beatles suddenly did. So just after his death, it did seem to give people more of an interest in the Beatles again. And, and post-1980, the conferences started to swell. They started to get bigger. Yes, now that you've asked me that question, I remember Mark Lewison said that and gave me specific examples. And also Richard Porter talked about, I think he was at the first Beatles week in Liverpool, which maybe you know, someone will probably email you and double check this, but I think <laughs> it was before Lennon's death. Or any, and again, it was very, very fringe, very cult. After Lennon's death, it started to blossom. Mm. Uh, you find this thing with the Beatles as well. I suppose Britpop was the next big one. And then, you know, an anthology came out during that. And then you had the one album. There's all these things that seem to just keep pushing. Beatles fandom forward and the conventions from what people I've interviewed, not firsthand, from what people have told me, they did suddenly change. And unfortunately, the initial impetus was predicated on a tragedy. Mm. Well, one of the chapters in your book that was of particular interest to me was your chapter on Beatles books for obvious reasons, where you look at primarily Hunter Davis. Philip Norman and Ian MacDonald uh, and their respective books, which all listeners, I would imagine, of this podcast will be familiar with, so we don't need to go into too much detail there. Why did you select those three books to, to talk about, first of all? First of all, those three books had a massive influence on me. Again, Hunter Davis, probably like a lot of people who are in my sort of age group, that was the first, probably the first. Actually, I was thinking about this last night. I think the first two Beatles books I read were Hunter Davis's authorised biography in the late 70s, and I absolutely loved it. And then possibly Alan Williams's The Man Who Sold the Beatles. Mm. And then I have a memory of reading Lennon Remembers. Those are possibly the first books I read. But the reason I wrote about those three writers, I absolutely love Revolution in the Head. Um, we have to deal with Philip Norman because his stock seems to fall in a little bit because it's, let's just say he's rather subjective and opinionated in shout, mm. especially. And I love Hunter Davis's. And I largely grouped these writers together as Beatles superfans, journalists who were obsessed with the Beatles and loved them. So I thought they're a, they're a type of fan and also been a type of fan in a sense. And I think specifically... Norman and MacDonald epitomise this. They don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. They're entirely subjective. And there's, that's good and bad. One, there's a real emotion, real warmth that you're drawn into that type of writing. I mean, Philip Norman was initially a novelist. Mm. So he, in a way, he has taken liberties and 
novel novelistic devices like creating quite crude characterizations of the Beatles and the way he writes very metaphorical, very very fluent. All of that makes it almost move away from fact and to be slightly novelistic. And I thought that is very interesting. Now he has, as I said, his stock has fallen a little bit because he was so Lenin centric and dis- dismissed Paul so much, which is absolutely ridiculous. And of course, you know, Mia Culpa, he admitted it himself. He really had to go completely change his opinions and do his biography of Paul McCartney. He went, sorry, I got it wrong. So, I mean, that's a fascinating story as well. And he's an absolute, he does adhere to this idea of being a super fan. And also, Ian McDonald as well, incredibly opinionated, incredibly subjective. And he does what I like about, well, not all mainstream writers do this when they write about the Beatles. Ian McDonald's uh, a musician and does sort of wrestle and deal with musicology, which is sometimes I think it's a mistake. People are a book on the Beatles and they don't know the difference between a major and minor chord. Before I wrote the Beatles and found them, I played all the songs very badly on my guitar just to sort of get into it a little bit. But really back to your initial question, I would say that Ian McDonald and Philip Norman almost adhered to the principles of the new journalism of the 60s and 70s, people like Wolf and people like Hunter S. Thompson. Hey, who cares? Take a deep dive, write my opinions. You're not going to get the whole truth here. You're going to get something subjective, but you know what? It's going to be imbued with warmth. It's going to be lyrical. It's going to be flowery. It's going to be beautifully written, and you either take it or leave it. And also, there's a book I absolutely love, which has um, been featured in your program, The Beatles and Historians. Arian Tuckerson Webber's book, yeah. Yeah, I, I, absolutely, I think that book is superb. Memory's fallible. Um, historicist will tell you as well, historical method does have its problems, that you're going to get things wrong. She has put both those arguments in, in bold and very sharp relief in her book. So then when she does that and points out the mistake, she goes, well, why not? Why not write something subjective, poetic, a little bit crazy, a little bit idiosyncratic, a little bit opinionated? You know, and it isn't the spirit of the Beatles. It, it's got a warmth that their prose is imbued with colour, vividness, all of those things. And in a way, you, even though the truth, you don't get objective truth all the time. You do sometimes. Mm. You don't get this mannered objective truth. But you do get, you get their warmth for the writers and why they're fans. Absolutely you do. So I think it's an approach to the Beatles. Let's go, look, I might not get everything right, but it's okay in a way to take liberties like slash fiction does, like novelists do. Maybe biographies and history books do a little bit. And I don't know if that's completely a bad thing. Maybe it is. And the new journalism sort of manifesto was, yeah, there's a kernel of truth in everything. There is documentary fact, but you can evoke, um, say, something like the Beatles phenomenon with really wonderful prose to draw people in. So if you get the odd thing wrong, maybe it's not that bad. Now, the longest chapter in, in the book is the chapter on, on fan fiction, something that I and I dare say a good percentage of our listeners probably don't have a huge amount of knowledge on. As you say, there's lots of different versions of, of fan fiction in, in inverted commas. So if you could kind of run through a little bit about what elements of fan fiction involve the Beatles and what kind of purpose does it serve in relation to the fandom? It's a really interesting question. I divided 
Beatles fan fiction in three types. First, I looked at literary fan fiction and I looked at Kevin Barry's Beetle Bone. I know he's been a guest with you as well. Superb book. And in a way, you could say in, in inverted commas, it's a bit more literary. It's a little bit more acceptable. It's a, he's a great novelist. Mm. He's a prize-winning renowned novelist. And he approaches them with a certain amount of respect, a little bit of respect. There's a good bit of subversion in there as well, but it's, it's literary fiction about the Beatles. So that was the first book that I wrote about in that chapter. Then I loved Ian McLeod's short story, Snodgrass, which imagines John Lennon has a temper tantrum in 1962, walks out of the Beatles, and we catch up with him in 1990, and he's basically a ne'er-do-well unemployed, quite bitter, and the comedy in that's absolutely amazing. Incidentally, Sky do a great film, starring Ian Hart, which you must have seen mm-hmm. on that as well. So those were the two um, literary fiction books. And there was a little bit of disrespect in there, uh, lots of jokes, and superb pieces. And then I thought, it'd be interesting to combine that with what's the next stage? Fan fiction, which is, again, just what ifs. People who you know travel back in time and meet the Beatles are, they just invent what ifs. And again, it is not authorised disseminated by, you know, acceptable publishers. It's online. People can comment on it immediately. People can criticise it. But having said that, I mean, some of those, those stories are very literary, very imaginative. They just don't happen to have the kudos of, you know, a, a, a decent publisher behind them. So I thought that was an interesting juxtaposition. And then we get to the old slash fiction. <laughs> and I thought, how can you not write about this? Uh, slash fiction's definition is it's highly eroticized fiction about the Beatles. It's usually a gay fiction as well. I mean, it started, i pretty sure from my research, it started with fans of Star Trek writing dream erotic scenarios with James T. Kirk and Spock. Then it developed with the Beatles to have, I'm going to try to put this very delicately, to have certain romantic liaisons and trysts between all the dramatist persona of the Beatles story, i.e. write highly sexualized gay fiction about the Beatles. And I thought, this is just absolutely wonderful. It ticks all the boxes. It's subversive. It's imaginative. It's creative. It's mostly ironic. It's done out of love. I really don't know what Paul and Ringo would make it if, if make off it if they ever if they ever read it. So um, it's very funny. And again, it's of off a pretty good standard as well. It's just, you know, that it's written quickly, it's stuck on the internet, it's disseminated quickly, people comment on it very quickly, and it's just not, you know, it's just not couched in a nice cover and stuck in a shelf and sold by a publisher. For the most part, there's the odd, some Beatles fan fiction. There's a great one called Across the Universe. I don't know if you might have read it. As I say, it's something that I was not really aware of. We're not, I'm not the target market for this kind of stuff, but it's mm. it's incredible that there's, that there's this whole area out there. One of the things that I, I got from when I spoke to Rob Sheffield for his uh, for my episode with him about... The, wonderful during the Beatles book oh it could be. it's one of my favorite Beatles books a brilliant book. definitely if I did a top 20 it's right it's probably it's top 10 certainly he said that one of the things he noticed is in the start of the pandemic when you had a lot of 
people obviously happy to stay at home across the world, uh, late teenage, mid-teenage girls would suddenly refer to dad's record collection a bit more because they weren't going out at all or, or barely ever, then they would spend more time at home and away from the screens that they were scrolling through in their bedrooms, they would venture into the lounge and that would be a chance for dad to show, or mum, in fact, both equally for their parents to show some of their favourite music from their youth, even though their youth was probably the 80s and 90s. So they probably got it from their parents as much as their own first-hand experiences, but they showed them this music. And then through the pandemic and bleeding into now, you saw a big upswell in a new generation of mainly female Beatles fans. So it's uh, it's never-ending, and I'm sure that feeds into some of that that kind of slash fiction you were talking about. I think it does. That's really interesting what, what you said, breaking down, I suppose, some sort of generation gap, if there's such a thing. Mm. Get, having access to this music mm. and enjoying it in that yeah. context is fascinating. You, like me, must know this. When I did go to the conventions as well, I would meet fans from seven years old with their parents right up to 85-year-olds. And I interviewed lots of millennial fans. And they, they'd seem a little bit like the demographic that you described. Mm. The, the ones you've just described, I think, are probably Gen Zers. Yeah. probably you know probably in their teens and they they get into mum and dad's music but then what's fantastic about that those sort of people tend to fetishize this era i mean there's there's millennial fans who bought uh larva lamps and typewriters and even the pen pals you know letters to people because they really want to inhabit the 60s so much so i dare say that these little mason slash fiction writers who just listen to mum and dad's records they'll they'll end up doing the same uh, and that's absolutely key about fandom isn't it it is so ubiquitous the, the cultural phenomenon is so huge that as you say that demographic to be into a group that haven't recorded a note in anger since probably since since august 1969 apart from the i mean mind session where they doodled a bit i mean that's what 52 years ago i think it is um one of the interesting things you were talking earlier about how these things happen that scoop up new fans from really from John's from 1980 onwards from from John's death into anthology the one album the love album and obviously get back is the latest uh, uh, kind of scooper should we say that that's definitely (laughs) that's definitely got a lot of a lot more people on board but I think the difference is as opposed to the anthology so then I was what was I 12 in 1995 when the anthology came out and the, the thing that, that's different now, where I think Get Back won't have quite as long a lasting effect as the anthology did and the Free as a Bird, Real Love single, is that a lot of the music of the 90s, particularly in the UK, was very Beatles-influenced. Britpop being the best example, but even if you look at something like Take That, Gary Barlow is essentially a McCartney-type songwriter. So if you looked at that top 10 top 20 UK chart, 94, 95, 96. A lot of that music is still quite Beatlesque. If you look at the music now in on the top 10, much more of it. You've got your Ed Sheeran's, Taylor Swift, uh, people like that that are still very successful and they're still essentially song-based. And obviously we know both those artists love the Beatles. But the influence of R&B, hip-hop, dance, all those genres, they seem to have more power now. And those types of music have very little relation to the Beatles. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not Get Back can hold on to the 
the Beatles fans that they've got like the anthology did. I think that's a very astute, very perceptive um, comment. I was 30 when anthology came out. I, I tend to think you've got a very good point there. Absolutely love Get Back. I think you're right. The charts, music has changed quite a lot from what was in the charts in 94, 95, 96. Hmm. You're right, there was boy bands. There was absolutely the whole Britpop thing. Oasis, Blur, all of those bands, you know, influenced hmm. by the Beatles and the Kinks. So the whole, the whole context, the whole milieu was really probably conducive to really giving the Beatles a push forward. And then as we sort of re- alluded to at the start of this podcast, then I think one in 2000, obviously, coming on the back of that, was the, wasn't it the biggest selling album of the year in 2000, which is ridiculous. Because I thought that, and I'm sort of sitting around as an absolute Beatles nerd and obsessive going, in 2022, what's going to happen? Is Get Back going to send off more ripples, another wave? I don't know, because it absolutely is. I maybe contend, well, it's obviously the best Beatles film. Mm. It's absolutely amazing. But as you say, an amazing piece of art, wonderful. Are things more atomized, diffuse now? Is it kind of the same influence? Have the charts changed? I mean, this is all a what if. I think you're onto something there. I'm not sure it's going to have quite the reach and the influence of stuff in the 90s. I think it'll have some reach, definitely. Yes. It's already got, but I, I just, I think it's interesting. I think culture has, has moved on to an extent that the Beatles feels. I mean, I suppose one of the things about the Get Back is that it does feel very now. Yes, the, the way that it looks and the fact that there's no contemporary interview footage or audio, etc. Mm-hmm. So it feels quite now. So I think that is on its side, but. I think it's a bit reality TV in a way. Exactly. The, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, Andy Miller made that great point on the on his episode of Eggpod on the yes. on the amazing Get Back series that Chris Shaw did. Hello, Chris. Thank you for that. He said that even if this had been done in you know 99 2000 before the widespread influence of reality tv it might not have had the the impact that it had so once again they've timed it perfectly when it comes to these things i mean the reality tv influence is absolutely there and get back It, it is amazing you do feel like you're in the time capsule you feel like you're back there with the beatles the way that peter jackson is you know the way he's shot it, the way he's, he's taken that colour out, the way he makes it, the way he makes it look. Yeah, the whole thing. Just to, to conclude, really, Richard, the, the book's written, and as I said, it, it sounds like it was quite a, a journey for you. It obviously took you quite a few places. Did writing the book kind of change how you felt about the Beatles as a group? Did it alter your fandom at all, having, having, having spent years writing about their fandom? Yes, it did, Absolutely. I suppose that was the initial reason for writing it, is to take a deep dive into something you love. And then after writing the book, looking back on it now, it absolutely did change my fandom. One, I realised how amazing conventions were. We've been in lockdown for two years. We're atomised, we're isolated. To be with a sense of community and friends is absolutely amazing. I mean, it really made me value the importance of that. It also showed me that 
concurrently, the songs, the image, everything about the Beatles is amazing. I can't think of another band who've been as diverse. I mean, we've mentioned the White Album. I mean, you've got experimental Stockhausen type music and that, John Cage, Berio, whatever. You've got English pastoral music and that. You've got rock and roll. You've got everything. Now, it's because, because they're so inherently good They'll be around for a long time. As, as McDonald said, the Beatles songs also, even when they go crazy and inventive and do Tomorrow Never Knows, they always have a populist feel to their songs. Mm. It, their music is folk music, and folk means people. You know, as classical music was getting more experimental and rarefied and divorced from your average person in the early 60s, the Beatles came along with folk music that communicated to everybody. And because they're inventiveness, their unusualness, their eccentricity is couched in this folk music frame, it's going to go on forever. It's going to resonate for such a long time. But the second thing as a fan that really was, uh, in a way, a revelation is that, obviously, without fans, without their inventiveness, it's not going to go on. Secondly, it does add, it's, it's like shiny bottle, buttons, on the original Beatles text, it adds something to them, it reinterprets them, it reimagines them. Now, where it's going to go from 2022, we just don't know, but it is fascinating to see and to watch. And it also made me think of the psychology of being a Beatles fan as well. What got me into it? As I said, I think when you think back to the earliest experiences in your life, I was born in the 1960s. Don't really remember the Beatles together, but then when I think back, I'm playing in a sandpit, or my and I hear a Beatles song on the radio. I hear my brother singing a song. It colonizes your mind right from the start, and that's interesting. Also, when you go on a walking tour, you go to a Beatles museum. The psychological impact of that is fascinating as well. You know, do you wallow in the nostalgia? Millennials and Gen Zs—they're immediately going to make the video. They're immediately going to upload it. All what they experience is immediately going to be digitized and then people will comment on it. So it absolutely changed my conception of fandom. Fandom is baggy, it's big, it's expansive, it's huge, and it's just going to keep morphing into different directions that you and me can't predict. Well, what an exciting way to end, Richard. Uh, I've really enjoyed uh, our conversation and I've really enjoyed the book, The Beauties and Fandom. So uh, thanks so much for your time. Joe, thank you very much.